Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. The biggest news story of 2022 has been inflation, particularly how central banks around the world have responded to inflation and its implications to the financial markets. We've seen the effects of rising interest rates on several sectors, including the labor market, but how successful have policymakers been with their deflationary strategies? Our guest today is economist and author Todd Hirsch, who joins host Pamela Ritchie to discuss the new ways in which we should think about government and economic policies, and how we can better prepare for an uncertain future. Todd notes policymakers are playing too much from the 20th century playbook, and it's about time they update their methods to fit the 21st century. A few topics discussed today include labor dynamics, central banks and liquidity, geopolitics, supply chains, and Canada's oil-producing provinces' debts. Todd joins us today from Calgary. This podcast was recorded on November 28th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Todd, I'm really glad that you're joining us today in particular because we're, we're sort of at the cusp of a whole lot of influential inflation data that's due out over the, well, really before sort of the holidays begin. Um, in light of that, and, and potentially how good news might be bad news and bad news might be good news, sort of outline your thesis on inflation at this point in our lives and kind of in our times. Yeah, well, it's such a fascinating file to be watching inflation in 2021 and 2022 because we are seeing a kind of inflation we've never really seen before. This is not, to borrow the phrase, this is not your father's inflation. Uh, And in some ways, inflation today, it mirrors, and I hate to use this metaphor, but it mirrors the the COVID pandemic. Uh, Because, you know, in March of 2020, when COVID arrived, it was something brand new. It was something that the epidemiologists and the scientists hadn't really seen before. They understood in principle what it was, but they didn't really know how to fight it because it was new. And then it would morph and change, and we saw all these variations. Inflation, uh, contemporary inflation, is a bit the same. It is not like inflation in the 70s. It is a very different. It's driven by a bunch of different things all at the same time. And all of the listeners on, on the program, they'll be very familiar with it. You know, it was supply chain disruptions. It was um, commodity prices. It was, you know, sort of that fuel, uh, the monetary fuel driven inflation. All of these things combined. That's made it not only difficult to fight, but also unpredictable in knowing what it's going to do next. You know, there is a chance inflation could drop back down very, very quickly. Um, there's also a chance inflation could linger on for a few more years. It's unpredictable. So why can't we model that? Okay, so we hear news out of China today. I mean, it's it's tragic news because it means that there's more COVID, there's more lockdowns. Um, but it ultimately, on the inflation front, which is what we're zeroing in on today, means 
the whole discussion of reshoring of imports, exports, supply chains, wh why can't we model this? Yes, there are many different pieces, but economic models are built for just this purpose, no? Yeah, well, a lot of the economic models that economists have used and come to rely on uh, from the 20th century, and I am, by the way, an economist from the 20th century, that's when I received all my training, and I always say it's not that the, you know, the models and the theory that we learned in the 70s and 80s and 90s, it's not that it was wrong. It's just a lot of it is now incomplete to describe what's going on in the 2020s. This economy is very different than it was in the 1960s and 1970s when a lot of those textbooks would have been written and a lot of that theory sort of became the, the, the economic dogma of the day. So we have to sort of think about new ways of, of modeling. It's not we throw the models out, but we maybe rely a little bit less on the models because it is a different world. The economy functions. There's a lot of different factors going on. Um, one of the things I always like to use as a great example is, you know, we in the 60s and 70s, when you think about big macroeconomic forces, they didn't have to deal with companies like Google or Amazon. Like these are brand new creatures that in a lot of ways are driving an economy in very different ways. So the models, to wrap that up, the models aren't wrong. They're just incomplete to describe what's happening. Are we feeling the effects of a withdrawal of liquidity? Is that a three-year story going back three years or is that going back 20 years? Well, that might actually be going back 20 years. I mean, we've seen inflation, you know, pressures so weak for so long. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere in 2021, these inflation pressures blew up. But all of the conditions were there for a long, long time, even going back to the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, when, you know, central banks piled all this liquidity into the market. And economists said, just you watch, this is going to be inflationary. And then it wasn't for a long, long time, even through the initial uh, liquidity uh, injection in 2020, still nothing happened. But all of a sudden in 2021, all of the right conditions lined up, exacerbated by the supply chain disruptions and invasion of Ukraine and all those things. It all created this bonfire of inflation that very suddenly blew up. So it is a longer term story. It's a longer term story. It's really interesting to sort of get different perspectives on that. that it, it was sort of a mystery where where inflation was for all those that long yeah. decade of inflation. Um, let's go to the labor market, which you outlined just talking a couple of minutes ago. Large tech people working differently. I mean, the whole world has been able to work differently. Not the whole world. Yeah, much of the world has been able to work differently, and that that wasn't an option um, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. What are the labor dynamics in light of the fact we have jobs numbers coming out uh, days away? What should we be looking for in these numbers that is different and new and skewed? Mm -hmm. Well, the labor market is another really great example of we got to stop relying so much on the 20th century models and even the data collection. And I don't want to sound like I'm being critical of Statistics Canada because they do a great job. But in a lot of ways, you know, the labor force survey, which comes out the first Friday of the month, that survey started back in 1976, I think it was. Uh, so, you know, it's almost 50 years old, or is it 50 years old, you know, coming up on it? Um, even the types of way we work, uh, the types of answers people might give to that question, are you working or not working? It's more complicated in 2022. COVID really accelerated a lot of the trends. 
around remote working because of course all of that was building long before COVID. COVID really accelerated a lot of that and kind of reinforced in, in most people's minds, at least sort of those knowledge workers, office worker, you know, kinds of people in the labor force that it doesn't really matter when or where you are, work is something that is sort of integrated in your life. It no longer is the nine to five cubicle in a downtown office. It can be like that, but it doesn't have to be that way. So Did I lose you there for a minute? Yeah, just nope. for a second. And I, I think we heard you say it, does, it can be the nine to five, but, but it doesn't have to be. We see it in cities, we see it where there are or aren't people on the subways on certain days kind of thing. Um, but so how should we look at the labor report in order to give us information essentially to for how we should invest, at least flagging something to be of note ultimately for investors? Yeah, well, when we see those employment numbers or the unemployment rate, it's, I don't wanna make it sound like it's it's unimportant because it is important. But I think it is less descriptive of the economy than it used to be maybe 20 or 30 years ago. How do you augment that? Sorry to interrupt, but like, what else do you fold in perhaps to get more information somehow? I think what we need to do is look at maybe some other kinds of questions rather than the simple question, are you working or not? But are you deriving income in some way? Um, there are a lot of people and this is where there's not a lot of data. There are a lot of people who derive money providing services online. Um, and that can be anything from, you know, answering surveys or doing accounting work or, you know, doing um, designing websites for people. That it's really the informal economy now. It's not a paid position. It's not an employment, a traditional kind of, I have a boss and a job. So those kinds of people might say uh, on a Statistics Canada survey that no, they're not working, but they are deriving income. They are earning a livelihood in some way. And maybe we need to think about questions broader. That's that so interesting. And it's a survey, as you say, like the format itself is a survey, but you know, I mean, the government knows how people are paying taxes and derived from what method of, of income and so on. I mean, what, what could be added from that perspective, for instance? From uh, tax uh, data? Yeah, ultimately from tax data, maybe it wouldn't come out monthly because there'd be issues with that. But I mean, is there is yeah. there something to add as a layer? Well, I think, you know, if there is more tax data, it's it's usually a couple of years lagging. By the time we get it from CRA, it's really rich data because it describes, you know, income, at least reported income. I mean, that's a, that's a whole other issue. What about unreported income? which everyone understands that exists. It's all out there. Uh, people who don't report income for whatever reasons. For sure. I mean, it's it's a fascinating area, ultimately. You know, yeah. another layer that um, that feeds into inflation that you mentioned that I wouldn't mind just getting sort of some broad strokes on is, is in fact, the geopolitical discussion. So we mentioned China going yeah. through um, a reopening process, which of course it is a process to reopen. And for China, it, it's, you know, it's a bigger process for many reasons, population length and duration and so on. We see Europe also trading off today in response to the fact that protests, it's, it's been difficult. Where, where do you put the sort of global, the geopolitical situation right now? Where, where are the risks and where are we perhaps not looking? Well, I've, I've been saying that I think 2022 <clears throat> will be the year that social studies students 30 years from now, they will have a whole chapter in their 
uh, textbooks. Well, they don't have textbooks anymore, I guess, whatever. But uh, 2022 is the year that I think geopolitics has shifted. Of course, a lot of things have been building up for many, many years. But 2022, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, this does sort of change everything in global geopolitics. And it does put the economy in a precarious spot. When, you know, people ask me sometimes, what, what keeps you awake at night? I have to confess, it's, it's not even really where inflation is going, but it's what is China's next move and what are relations between the United States and China? Where are those going? I have to in a smile a week ago, a week and a half ago. Sorry, say that again. I said there was a handshake and a and a smile we saw oh, yeah. between the leaders, which I think went some way to uh, yeah. calming. Well, others. and and even the you know bit of the icy uh, relation between uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and Xi Jinping uh, at the at the summit. Um, there's all these things that are affecting. Uh, dynamics with our trade relationship and America's trade relationship and geopolitical relationships. So it's no longer just about economics, but this could spiral into something worse, especially when you look at all of the comments around Taiwan. Now I have to, you know, admit full disclosure, I'm not a geopolitical expert. That's not my sort of wheelhouse, but I do listen to a lot of the geopolitical experts and uh, a lot of them are you know, sort of sounding the alarm saying this is not moving in the right direction globally. That has economic implications for global trade patterns, for sort of the, the neoliberal models that prompted a lot of economic prosperity in the latter half of the 20th century, the tearing down of trade barriers and opening up of trading blocks. And all of that is kind of a bygone era. <laughs> and now if we can get countries to stop invading each other, you know, that's sort of the best we can be hoping for. No one's really talking about expanding trading blocks anymore. So economically, this does have an impact. Let's do what this, this is actually when I was thinking about speaking with you, this is one of the first questions I wanted to ask. So it's the idea of politicians have spent lots of money. We started off talking about the monetary side of things, but the fiscal side of things. Um, there's pressure from the public to keep the spending going. Uh, nobody wants to see that cut. But ultimately, is that going to be sort of an additional problem to get inflation down? I mean, I would add to that, is this the end of the fiscal story? Yeah. Well, what happened to Liz Truss, I think, is in Britain is instructive. And I think, you know, even though the general public might say, yeah, we need more stimulus dollars, we need help with inflation. I think there is a broader understanding that now is not the time to be pumping more money into the economy. Absolutely, if you need to focus some of that, you know, fiscal assistance to low-income Canadians, vulnerable Canadians, 100%. But broad spending in the economy, you know, everyone getting money like it was during uh, during uh, the beginning of COVID, I think there is a general agreement that that has to be reined in because this is only fueling inflation. It's more, you're throwing more wood onto the bonfire and you're causing, you could potentially cause an even bigger explosion of of inflation yeah fascinating okay other question here you mentioned this uh, is great off the top that inflation could drop very quickly actually can you can you follow up on that a little bit in what scenario it could well i mean so we now have seen supply chains more or less correcting themselves all of those indicators like shipping costs and you know delays at the ports around the world you know graphically this is all sort of returned to pre-covid levels so in some ways that factor kind of falls out of it um we 
we have seen commodity prices at the beginning of, of the invasion of Ukraine, like oil prices spike up. But most of those prices have also now fallen back to pre-invasion levels, uh, energy prices, uh, other commodity prices, agricultural prices. And just as quickly as inflation came spiking out of nowhere, it could drop back down. Now, it still might take a little while because it's always year over year comparisons that we're making. But if you look at even just the, the three month trend of inflation, it does seem to be coming down after we get to whatever point inflation sort of peaked, you know, we might see a plateau and then drop down quickly. I don't know if that is my prediction of what's going to happen, but I think it's a plausible scenario. Another plausible scenario is that this takes five years for inflation to come down. But I think, you know, in some ways, because it spiked up so quickly, we might not be surprised if it falls more quickly than we uh, we we might fear. Also, really interesting. Um, not long after the invasion of Ukraine, uh, we saw Germany, which is obviously borders Russia, just just totally kill its green budget, basically. But yeah. but now a question I wanted to ask you to get into sort of the climate discussion: Is energy security still able to be a green energy story? That is a complicated question because I think, well, everyone understands in the long run, yeah, the the, the, the quicker and, and more um, solidly we can move away from hydrocarbons. And here I'm talking about Europe particularly, um, the less we will be beholden on Russian oil and gas. I think everyone would love that as an end game. But there's also in the immediate present, we need to heat homes and we need actually to keep people alive. Um, so the green transition is maybe something aspirational. We haven't lost sight of that, but we also need those hydrocarbons today to keep this house warm and prevent people from actually freezing to death. So the dynamics are really, really strange and really crazy. I don't think it is derailed um, the, the green agenda and moving away or moving towards more renewables and um, clean energy technologies. But it, I think it has in some ways delayed it a bit. It's, it's a bit of a speed bump along that path. Okay. I mean, what's the temperature in Calgary? Oh, it's minus 13 and minus 23 with the wind this morning. It's cold. Yeah, but <laughs> not uh, not atypical, but yes. No, well, the, skier, the skiers are happy because it's going to yeah, snow. Exactly, it can make snow for sure uh, yeah. if it's not falling already. Tell us a little bit about uh, the province of Alberta. Alberta was able to pay down all kinds of provincial debt. Lots of lots of oil producing provinces actually have been able to do that over the course of the last while. Um, finances are looking better in those situations. What what is the yeah. discussion of oil oil producers in yeah. right now? It's really interesting. And I mean, I've spent my entire life in Alberta and I've spent 30 some years as an economist here in Alberta. So, uh, you know, I've watched the province through all kinds of ups and downs over the, the past uh, several decades. Alberta, Saskatchewan, you know, we were hit the very hardest at the beginning of COVID because energy prices fell. They actually went negative. So in 2020, the well, every no one will forget easily. That was quite no one will forget. Like, I'll pay you $40 if you take this oil off my hands. It was just, you know, down the rabbit hole, Alice in Wonderland sort of 
But of course, those oil prices rebounded far more quickly than I think a lot of people expected. And so even though Alberta faced the deepest recession in 2020, almost a 9% you know, contraction in our economy, uh, we've rebounded the most quickly and will likely avoid recession uh, that the rest of the Canadian economy could see in 2023, simply because commodity prices are, are holding up the ship. Now, here we are again in Alberta, you know, we're on the roller coaster of commodity prices, but there is a growing, not quite unanimous yet, but there is a growing chorus. It's now two thirds of Albertans believe that it is in our best interest economically to diversify our economy away from energy, uh, from hydrocarbons, including towards renewables and clean energy technology. 67% in, in the last survey, which was just completed by CBC here in Alberta. That's an astounding turnaround from say maybe 10 years ago or for sure 20 years ago, when in fact it was still more people in Alberta were ready to double down on oil and gas. Today, it's, I wouldn't say it's you know, a sense that we need to abandon oil and gas, but there's a growing recognition this is not, this is not the growth engine of the future. It's a backbone, as I always describe it, we're not turning away from energy or from uh, oil and gas, but the growth we recognize has to come from renewables, from clean energy technology, um, from the tech sector itself, from life sciences, ag sciences. And we are seeing that, particularly in, in the larger centers, Calgary and Edmonton. So with that said, what, what do you think of this discussion of a, a commodity you know, cycle I mean, some would add super cycle. I mean, what are your views on that? Well, yeah, I mean, the super cycle theory is is compelling in a lot of ways. And when you look over time, you do, you know, kind of see those patterns. Um, however, you know, energy, hydrocarbons, oil particularly, is now a very unique commodity. It's not really the same as it used to be in the past um, when oil, along with all these other commodities, would follow these big super cycles. Oil in 2022, the world has a conflicted relationship with oil, and no one is more aware of that than Albertans. On the one hand, uh, they want to, the world wants to gather in Egypt and sort of shame people for using oil. But the irony is not lost on us here in Alberta that they've all flown their private jets to Egypt <laughs> to shame everybody else for, for using oil. Well, so the reality is a gas producer too. I mean, there's full full of flares all over the place, all over the all place. over the place. Yeah, yeah. it's a fascinating discussion. All of that, but it I mean, yeah. do 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 you think that that like what what is the thesis for investors? Do you think on the commodity side of things? Like, are are we still in this cycle? Is it is it still looking for the short term? Yeah, and you know, I I can't give investment advice. That's why I'd probably be interested in in some of the comments of the listeners on the call. Uh, because they actually can <laughs> but you know in, in in the short term you know we we can't do without hydrocarbons the, the global economy would literally collapse um and i think it's maybe well intended but naive for people to say just shut down oil we're not going to bring one more barrel of oil out of the ground um i i get their intention and their uh, sentiment with that but the reality is not that it's it's not that simple yes we do need very quickly to uh, eliminate carbon from our economy. But I think it's also worth noting that the war is not on oil, the war is with carbon. So if we can, and like we are doing here in Alberta, figure out ways to make oil carbon neutral. 
In other words, using carbon capture to sequestrate every molecule of oil in the ground, one for one, the new molecules of oil we're bringing out of the ground, leaving a barrel of oil coming out of Alberta carbon free or carbon neutral, meaning we can still create plastic, we can still fly in airplanes, but moving towards a, a time when in fact that produces no additional carbon in the atmosphere. I think that's where the conversation needs to be realistically. Is the conversation there? It is there, yeah. I mean, a lot of the, the, the listeners on this call would be familiar with, in Alberta, the Pathways Project, led by the six largest oil sand producers and others in the energy industry. They have a very, very clear plan to move towards net zero carbon barrels of oil coming out of the oil sands. It also, not just carbon capture, but it also includes plans to use carbon in manufacturing around carbon fiber and, and different kinds of manufactured um, um, items that require carbon in their, you know, in their assembly or in their manufacture. So they do have a very clear plan. I believe it's to 2040. Um, it, it might be sooner than that. They do have a clear plan, but it is an aggressive plan. It is aspirational. Critics might say, well, they're never going to get there. Other critics might say, well, they're really just greenwashing to, you know, be able to keep producing oil. But I have to take them at their word that, you know, they too uh, live on this planet. They too have kids that are going to inherit this planet. And they have no incentive in, you know, far, you know, the, the global uh, atmosphere far exceeding that 1.5. So I have to take them at their word that they are, you know, moving towards this net zero carbon future realistically. Um, I think you spent time at the Bank of Canada, if I recall. And I so did. I, you did. Um, this is not uh, to ask a question in the sense that um, the central bankers don't have incredibly good intentions, but I'm going to ask the question anyway, you know, as human beings. But is the most important thing to central bankers, and we'll say so-called developed nation central bankers, is the most important thing reputation? Must they get inflation down? Oh, that is a great question. And yeah, I did spend some time at the Bank of Canada, so I'm particularly interested. I mean, that was 20 years ago, but I, I have a little bit of sympathy for my former colleagues at the Bank of Canada because they are like all eyes now are on central banks, not just the Bank of Canada, but every central bank. Yeah, did they wait a bit too long to act on inflation? Looking back on it in hindsight, probably. But we also have to remember in the fall of 2021, when arguably they should have been raising rates already aggressively, you know, we were in the throes of the Delta wave of, of COVID. Everything was being shut down again. Christmas was being canceled for the second year in a row. Canadians were owly about this whole thing. No one wanted to talk about COVID anymore, but we were right in the middle of, of a huge wave. On top of that, had the Bank of Canada come out and said, oh, and by the way, on top of all this bad news, we're now raising interest rates. That really would have been tough messaging. And I think they held out hope that inflation would be transitory, the word they kept using. But by January, you know, sort of the gig was up. Uh, it wasn't transitory. And then, of course, in, in early 2022, we saw these um, very aggressive rate increases. But if they are able, and the bank, when I say they, I mean central bankers around the world, if they're able to orchestrate this mythical soft landing in 2023, modest recession, followed by stability, 
and maybe even rate cuts a year from now or so, um, they're going to look like absolute magicians, like rock stars, un, you know, unseen at any point. But that's a big if. A lot of things have to line up in their favor if they are going to see that soft landing. A more severe recession, or even worse, a, a recession with inflation still out of control, the, the dreaded stagflation. You know, there's going to be some very tough questions asked of central bankers. Um, did they get this right? Um, did they lose their focus? What is their mission? Do they have the right tools? All of those questions, I think, will be um, asked in 2023, a year from now. So we're going to have to fasten our seatbelts and watch what happens over the next 12 months. Todd Hirsch, it's a, it's a great pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much for joining us on Fidelity Connect. Pamela, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.